Lord, thank you so much that we can come tonight for our Bible studies and our youth group, kids clubs. Lord, we pray that you bless all that we do and say this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you remember, we covered half of this material. This is pretty much the same handout as last week. And we covered half of this material when we we looked at chapter number 12. And in chapters 12 and 13, we're picking up um, a, a bit of a theme from chapters 10 and 11. So up until now, what we've seen in studying the book of Revelation is we had seen a chronology of events with unfolding judgments and descriptions of judgments that were to come. And then when we get to these chapters, we're getting a little bit different perspective. And the chronology, the chronological descriptions have stopped. And now we're getting a more cosmic view of all of this. We're getting the different perspective of the events of Revelation. And so in chapters 10 and 11, we really saw this theme of preparing the world for the kingdom coming. And that was when John was instructed to take the reed and to measure the temple. Um, that was in chapter 11. And now in chapter 12, we're looking at the great characters of Revelation that goes from chapter 12 and chapter 13. So let's just, uh, let's back up a little bit in chapter 12. We'll reread some of this, but we'll move quickly through it. And then we'll get into chapter number 13. So Revelation chapter 12. Let's see, let's see how well we remember what we're looking at here. So in Revelation 12, there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. So, now, oh, well, let's read on. Stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her a thousand and two hundred and threescore days. All right. See what we remember. Who is the woman? The, this allegory here, this picture of the cosmic scene of Revelation. Do we remember who is the woman? That's right. The woman is Israel. And Israel travailing is all of the centuries of the struggle of the nation of Israel travailing to be delivered. And then who is the son that is delivered? I'm losing you a little bit there. You've started out really strong. Who is it? It's Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus. He is the, the promised one. And of course, the dragon is symbolic of who? It's Satan. We're looking at Satan here. The dragon is Satan. Now, it is interesting that what we didn't talk a lot about was the seven heads, the ten horns. That's That reminds us of some of what Daniel described. And so the idea here of the seven heads and ten horns with this dragon, any idea on why What's the significance of seven heads, ten horns, all of this? Because we understood last week that the dragon symbolized Satan, but it's not just a dragon. It's a dragon with seven heads, ten horns. I'm not looking necessarily for the exact, you know, perfect details of what that symbolizes, but does anybody have any idea what the, why the dragon has the, the, the multiple heads, the ten horns? Anybody at all? 
what that's about? Okay, so there is the, the idea here is let's just keep it real simple. We won't get into the specifics, but this has the idea of world powers aligned for evil so that the devil used and uses world powers to accomplish his purpose and he would use world powers to try to, to, try to stop the work of Christ. And so uh, Daniel would, would talk about that. We'll see more about this, but that's the symbolism there. It's, the devil is not operating independently. He's using the rulers and the leaders of the world to do that. But despite his efforts, she brings forth Christ. That's verse number five. Who was, was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's the language there. He was to rule all nations. That was the plan. Has that happened yet? No, it has not happened yet. That is yet to come. Before that could happen, the child was caught up unto God into his throne. And now the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So what you've got to understand is this is this is a couple thousand years of history condensed into a few verses, right? And there are some gaps here. It's just showing us the major themes. So Christ is caught up into heaven, and we don't have the church age. We go immediately to what's happening here between Israel and the battle with the Antichrist. So that's taking place, and when the Antichrist turns on the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel flees into the wilderness. And what is the timing of that? Well, we see here that she's going to be protected for 1,203 score days, which is how many years? Three and a half years. So this event, we would say, corresponds with the midpoint of what we call the tribulation, what is more accurately known as Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year uh, the, the seven period. In the middle of that three and a half years is when the Antichrist really reveals himself and now Israel flees into hiding. And so we saw the war in heaven. We looked at the uh, between Michael and his angels and we found the, the serpent, the, the dragon rather, who was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. So last week we talked about the casting of Satan out of heaven. And we pointed out, importantly, that this happens, this is not, this did not happen at the beginning. We see that Satan has access to heaven, uh, even now, I do believe. But there is coming a day when he will be completely cast from the presence of God and have no access. And then, we saw verse number 10, when that happened, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. So the devil being cast out of heaven permanently signifies one of the final events before the kingdom of God comes in its power and its fullness. So the accuser of the brethren is cast down. Verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now verse 12, so what happens now? What's going to take place in these last three and a half years of great tribulation? Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. 
And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished, for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. We're just getting the same thing restated here with more descriptive language that we saw back in verse number 6. Right? A thousand two hundred and three score days is three and a half years. Well, it's the same here. A time and times, that's one and two is three and a half. Three and a half years from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So God delivers the nation of Israel. So let's just kind of think about how this all transpires. In my understanding of the sequence of events, and some people will disagree with some of the chronology here, but I'm just going to give you my take on it. The rapture of the church occurs around the same time there is a covenant made with Israel and the world for seven years. So for seven years, there's temple worship. Everything is going well. If you live in, if you're a Jewish person, you're, you're experiencing something that you've not experienced before. Everything is good. Now, during that time, there will be a great revival that takes place. There will be many Jewish people that come to faith in Christ. We saw already that there would be two prophets preaching, that there would be 144,000 witnesses preaching about Jesus. So imagine that. There's people going to the temple to worship, Old Testament style, and now you have evangelists telling them about Christ. And so there'll be many that are saved. But now we're three and a half years in, and all of this is interrupted because the Antichrist declares war on the people of God, the national people of God, Israel. So we're not thinking about the church. We're thinking about Israel as the people of God. So, now Israel takes the advice of Jesus in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, when you see these things come to pass, get out of Jerusalem. Run. Matthew 24 wasn't written for us. It was written for the people that are going to experience these very things. Run into the mountains. So, that's what they do. And miraculously, we don't know the details, but it's as if on his wings, God carries the nation into a place of safety for the rest of the tribulation. However, there's a remnant, which leads us to believe that not everybody makes it. That there are some Jewish believers, now they're Jewish believers in Christ in this tribulation, they don't make it to that place. So, as a whole, corporately, the nation of Israel is in safety, but there's a remnant that don't make it out. And during that time, that remnant who don't make it out, it's going, they are going to be, face the wrath of the devil. And he's going to use the next characters we're going to see to make war with, with them. So, there'll be a deliverance and a protection of the majority of the people of Israel, but some will be the remnant that remains that are persecuted by the dragon. There's a lot there. If you're, if, you know, if you're watching this for the first time, you're joining us for the first time, you really got to catch up with some things or else I'm just blasting stuff at you. But we've been talking about this for a few weeks. 
So up until now, I'm going to move into chapter 13. So does anybody have any questions on that? Where we're, where we've come from? Or questions, comments? I think it was after one of the Bible studies. I don't know who it was. It might have been Seth that reminded me about the, the whole idea of the wings of the eagle. We saw that in Exodus as well when God delivered his people. I thought that was a cool observation. Anything else? Questions? Yes. Yes. In my, yeah. Now, again, we're piecing things together. There are the traditional, what's known as dispensational view is that the rapture takes place and then all of the, the sequence unfolds. Okay? I believe that based on, you'd have to go back to one of the earlier, maybe the third or fourth lesson where we talked a little bit about why I believe that. There are good Christians who disagree, and that would say that the rapture happens at a different point in this sequence. I don't believe that, so I'm not really teaching, <laughs> I'm not teaching it from that perspective. It would take a long time to do that. Um, so the position I'm presenting is that the rapture has taken place the, very much at the beginning, and now at the midpoint, all these events that we're looking at now take place. Okay? You gonna say something? Yeah, well there's four positions within one of four larger positions. <laughs> so you gotta go back to the early weeks. If you're so what we're looking at is known as a First of all, it's called a premillennial view of the whole book of Revelation. So those are terms. If you want to do deeper study, they're, they're good. We did this early. We have a premillennial view, but among people that have a premillennial view, then there are those four views that he talked about even among the, those. So there is plenty of disagreement about these events. That's why I don't fight about it. I just teach it how I understand it. And if somebody disagrees, we're all good. <laughs> we're not going to separate over it. We can uh, we can move on. But as I put the scriptures together, as I understand it, this is um, how we've harmonized the uh, how I'm most comfortable with this harmonization of it. And again, we dealt with this in earlier weeks, so I go back and look at those if anybody wants to look at it a little more closely. Okay, we got. Jesus is returning. Yeah. Somebody told me at the very beginning of the series, I talked about, well, there's premillennialists and postmillennialists and amillennialists. And, and one of the guys said to me, yeah, I'm a uh, panmillennialist. I said, what is a panmillennialist? It'll all pan out in the end, he said. So I thought that was pretty good, actually. Up until, and, and I got to say, you know, go back 20 years and churches had major fights over these, these issues. Um, like, like serious fights over them. But personal opinion is we have moved to a point in our culture where Christians don't have the luxury to fight over these kind of things anymore. I mean, the, the very gospel is at stake in, our, in, the, in, in the public arena. So I have no problem. I like to debate it and go back and forth. But I think we all understand what the, the spirit of this has been. Um, I try not to be overly dogmatic with these in anything studying prophecy. All right. So back to the back to the uh, 
material at hand. Let's move into chapter number 13. Chapter 13. And I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you go back, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 3, we're seeing some more repetition. Look at 12.3. There appeared another wonder, behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Now it's the beast rise up having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns, ten crowns. And upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. And his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. So, based on what we're reading so far, what are some clues about the identity of this beast? And, and most of you probably know, you're kind of jumping ahead, and you're like, well, it's the beast, that's the Antichrist, we know that. But... Let's just kind of pretend that we didn't know that for a minute. That's always a good way to study these things, is just to try as best we can to start from zero. And look at this and say, if we were just looking at this for the first time, what, what are some clues as, in the first couple of verses as to the identity of, of this person? What are, we, what are we learning about them? Yes, sir. It's not heavenly. Why are you saying that? Oh, so it's evil is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. It, but it's distinct from the dragon. So it's not just a new way of describing the dragon. It says here that he gets his power from the dragon. right? So, it's, so the similarities are he's also got the, 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 um, the horns and the crowns, right? but he's not the dragon. He gets his power from the dragon. What else do we learn about this person? This individual, this this whatever, this beast. What are you seeing in the first couple of verses? I'm sure it means something. I have no clue what though. <laughs> he came out of the sea. That's right. Well, the sea is is yes. The sea is symbolic of disorder and chaos at the end of the time there the bible says in the new heaven and new earth there is no more sea so there is some symbolism about the like they don't they didn't think of the sea as a wonderful you know place to vacation it was a place of fear and uncertainty and danger so that's that, that's some, a good point anything else we learn about the identity or the character of the beast here there's a few things that would give us a clue as to who he is Yeah, we, we didn't even get to verse 3 yet. But no, you don't have to apologize. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's stay in verses 1 and 2 for a, couple, for a little longer, though. No, I'm not, you know, you're good. But verses 1 and 2, what else do we learn about the identity of this person? Yeah. Yeah, so there's these animal-like characteristics. Um Boy, I really don't know the symbolism of that. A lot of people have speculated different things. I, I think it's really hard to know what the, the animal symbolism means personally, but you're right, that's there. 
There's a, there's a couple other things though that are that are key words in here that talk about what role this person has. Yes, Kathy. Okay, so what do you think that's significant of? Okay, so now he's delegating. Right. Yeah. Right, so what is a seat? What is a seat? We use that terminology. Yep. Yeah, it's a, pla- it's a place of dominion, the seat of power, the seat of authority. So he has a ruling position. He is the ruler. He is the ruler appointed by the devil. And he has authority. And then there's one other key thing in here that identifies him. So he's a ruler appointed by the devil, but there was something um, right, in the, right at the end of verse number one. He's a, his, a, key, a key to his identity is blasphemy. So now link that with other prophecies that we've read, other prophecies that we, that we know. What is the thing that the Antichrist will do, actually, that will ultimately reveal that he is, he will commit the ultimate blasphemy? And I know, Mr. Thompson, you know what that would be. What, would you share that with us? What, how is he going to blaspheme? Yeah, but where? Where is it going to take place? Yeah, what is that? Go ahead. Yeah, what's he going to do? Exactly. He's going to set up an image of himself in the temple. He's going to desecrate the holy place. That's what Daniel talked about. Jesus mentioned that in Matthew 24. The And we read it in Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as well. The key identity that's marked throughout the, throughout the Scripture is you know this is the Antichrist when you see him in the holy place, proclaim himself to be worshipped as God, and desecrate it. That is blasphemy, the ultimate blasphemy. So we're linking now, you're linking the, the prophecies that have gone before, and you're seeing the pattern continue. Alright? Now, so those clues alone, the idea that he has power, we see the crowns, this shows that these clues are showing us, yes, this is most likely the Antichrist. It is the Antichrist. Now look at verse number 3 as to what Amy was pointing out. One of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. So he's going to be, I don't know if, Someone will attempt to assassinate him, but he is going to have a mortal wound. But he is going to miraculously be healed. Now, where is that miraculous power obviously coming from? From the dragon, from Satan. And that is a what's called a lying sign. It's a, li- a lying spirit. So there's miraculous. So we spoke about this as well. That that. The, the forces of evil have miraculous power and miraculous ability, and that will take place, and now it will only, it will only serve to advance his position in the world. 
And when people are amazed that he miraculously survives this deadly wound, verse 4, they worship the dragon, which gave power to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? This is the leader that the world has always wanted. It's what they think anyway. The ultimate power position. Verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. What have we got there? Huh? Same. Yeah. So what have we got there? Three and a half again. We just have it stated different ways over and over and over again. Forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that Now here's a little proverb. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Why does why verse 9 and 10 get... What, what is the point of verse 9 and 10 there? It kind of interrupts the description with this, really a proverb. What's, what's the point of these verses here? Well, I, yeah, I think it relates to him and his activity. So what, what, what's, what's being communicated here in these, in these verses? Verse 9 and 10. So we're coming off this, we're coming off this, this description of everything that he's going to do. He's going to, he's going to, people are going to, he's going to make war against the saints and destroy them. Everybody on the earth that's not written in the book of life is going to worship him. And then we're given this little pause, this little thing to think about. Think about this, he says. So, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's part of it. But I, I think it's it's you gotta think again, he's he's speaking proverbally. So he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. I think it's it's literally just a reminder here that says, Listen, the Antichrist is gonna do his thing. He's gonna he's gonna be violent and make war. But he, that will also be his end. He will come to end the same way he started he will be brought to ruin. He's going to kill with the sword. That's going to be his end. And so because of that, this is why the saints can be patient. Whether or not that means they should or should not resist, the point is you can endure. Believer, you can endure. 
you can, again, I believe that this is scripture that is written. Again, I think there will be people that are suffering during these days. And they're going to read verses like this. The Holy Spirit's going to give them these verses and say, listen, yes, he's waging a sword, but that sword will bring his destruction. Yes, he's killing, but he's, he's going to end. So hang on. Hang on. Be patient. And patient means, and, and patience means endurance. Hang on. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's going to be his end. So it's, a, it's actually a bit of encouragement in the middle of the passage, in the middle of this passage. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That. I, yeah. I remember that. I'm. I'm not sure that's exactly what's being said here. I think it literally is this: the Antichrist is going to be rounding people up and bringing them into captivity. The Antichrist is going to be putting people to death, and in the middle of that is this encouragement that says, "Hey, he's going to do this for now." But everything that he's done will come back on him. And because of that, saints, take courage. Because of that, saints, you be patient. You hang in there. Because his end is written. That's the point of the verses, I believe. Why these, this is given here. Right. Yeah. It's Isaiah thirty three. Right. I think that again when we read this, we have a habit of always, you know, maybe not you, but just in general, Christians and you know, 20 and 21st century Western culture, we we take all of the scriptures and we always like to apply them to us, to us, to us. But sometimes what we're reading doesn't really have anything to do with us directly. doesn't mean we can't take encouragement from it. But if we're truly reading in context and understanding it was written for a purpose, we read verses like this, I think we can understand we, that, wait a minute, this is written to encourage these saints who are going to be going through this in the future. There will be real people that are dealing with this. So, consider that. Alright, verse 11. And I beheld another beast. Again, verse 9 and 10 was just a little parenthesis, and now we're back to these characters. And I beheld another beast coming up 
out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Now, this is actually interesting. I, was just, I just actually put this together right now. So far, we've had beasts coming out of where? The sea, and a beast coming out of the earth. But when, in the scene we saw earlier with the angel, was it the angel a couple weeks ago? The angel came down and put one foot, do you remember that? Put one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea. I think that's interesting, that, that symbolism that, uh, that we saw. I'm trying to find that. Anyway. Yeah, it's in chapter 10. Here you go. Look back at chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 1. I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. I think there's a picture here of the dominion. God is sending his angel down from heaven. The mighty angel is like, boom, splashes a foot in the ocean, boom, pounds a foot on the dust of the ground, and the cloud of dust comes up. They're in control of these things, and now you've got a beast coming out of the sea and a beast coming out of the earth. But God's in control of the whole thing. It would be interesting to think of, think of what we're reading in these chapters almost like a big canvas. And if you could, I'm not an artist, but if you could, you just start to lay out everything that John sees. It starts with the angel. And then there's this, the, the woman and the serpent. And then you've got the, the beast coming out of the sea. It just kind of, if you can imagine that and sketch it out in your, in your mind's eye, if you will, you see all of this and how they relate to each other. It's hard to do that with words on a page, but if you start to sketch it out, you can get a better picture of it. Kathy first, and then, did you have something? No, no worries, Mike. No, it's not all happening at the same time, but the vision is happening simultaneously. Because the vision, it's like a painting, right? It's like a painting that's being given, this vision that's being given to John, is he's seeing all of these events happening, and when John sees it, none of it has actually, some of it's past, some of it's present, some of it's future, but he's getting like a, um, what's it, like a mural almost, a live mural of all of these eternal events taking place. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I would I do believe that. That's who it's referring to. Jewish believers during the tribulation period. So now back to chapter 13 in our last section here. This beast coming up out of the earth in verse 11, he had two horns like a lamb, he spake as a dragon. He exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. 
And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Okay, so again, a unique character. Is this the dragon? No. Is this the beast? No. It's a, it's a third, it's not the, the beast that we just saw, it's a third, third character. Now, we'll see him more explicitly described later on, but this, this character is known as the false prophet. The false prophet. Now, going by the description we just read, you can probably see why is he, you know, why, what factors in here would identify him as, as a false prophet? What kind of things is he doing in the passage that we just read that are, Prophetic, but a false prophet. Okay, so he performs miracles. What else? Right, so he's directing worship. He's directing worship to, to him, to the, the first beast. He's got fire coming down from heaven. He's got all these powers. Verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast, beast should be killed. So he's the enforcer. So, but he, so imagine in the temple is this great blasphemy, this image of the first beast, the Antichrist, and now this guy is the worship leader for the Antichrist. He's the false prophet. And he instructs, he, he mandates that everyone worship this beast. Who, what does this remind us of? What other Old Testament passage does this remind us of? Worshiping an image of a leader. Nebuchadnezzar. In what empire? The what empire? Anybody? No? Babylonian empire. The Babylonian empire. So... Which may be the, you might be right about that. I forget my multiple names for ancient people. So, Babylon is actually going to come up in the next chapter too. So just kind of tuck that away and, and think of that. So these are the worship, this worship that is going to be explicit in the, in these last days has been around since the beginning. It's false worship that's always been around. It's referred to as Mystery Babylon, which again, will come up next week. But for now, so this image of the beast, he actually, the false prophet actually has the power to animate the image so that it speaks. Creepy, right? But that's, that's what will take place. Yeah, the word translated life is the word for breath. So, I, I don't think that it is a... I believe that it's a spirit life that comes into this... Um, this right. Right, not that... Yeah, not new life. I don't believe it's new life being created. It's, it's an animating force, but... Um, Again, the word translated life is, is also the word breath, which, I mean, if you trace that out, the breath of life, that whole concept. So, 
I can see why it's translated that way. But I don't. I, I think comparing Scripture with Scripture, that's a good point. He's not creating new life here. Um, we know that the spirit world has power to animate, though, right? Because when you look at the story of Pharaoh's magicians, they took a stick and they put some kind of life into that stick when it became a serpent, right? There was some life that came into that. So we have to assume that would be a spirit life that went into it. Okay. So if you will not worship the beast, you are put to death by this false prophet. Verse 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. This has often been pointed out and in, in, it would have been much more difficult for that to have been accomplished in ancient times. But in our world today, with technological advancements, I think the mistake people make a lot is, oh, you know, chip implantation or something like that. This is the mark of the beast. No, it's not. It's not, okay? No, it's not. It's not. What it is, is it's proof that in the last days when the mark of the beast does come, the technology exists to make it quite easy, right? That, that's the point of all this. It, or the, and I think as we look at the world events, yes, on the one hand, we should say, wow, Bible prophecy is, this shows us that what the Bible prophesied, that previous generations would have thought, you know, scratch their head and say, how is this possible? We've seen technological advancements to make all of this possible. But that doesn't mean that those technological advancements, which will be the means of the Antichrist power, it doesn't, what is it? It's not an, they're not equal. They're not the same thing. Did that make sense? Did I get that out? Spat out? Okay. When the social, that all throughout history, and Christians just make themselves, like, when Christians speak things sometimes, it makes them look foolish over time. Because when the social security numbers came out, a whole group of Christians said, this is the mark of the beast. When credit cards came out, when ATMs came, <laughs> came out, we just keep going down the line. Whereas what we should have said is, wow, this does show that the Bible is not as far-fetched as people previously thought, because look what can happen, look what we can do. That's a much more, much more um, reasonable, thank you, <laughs> much more reasonable explanation of these things. I'm sure in the 1800s they have their explanation. Yeah. In the 1600s they have their explanation. This is being taught all down through the centuries. Yeah, except, you know though, it's important for us to remember that prophecy has not been taught at this level throughout the past generations, though. Like, it was much more mysterious to, if you st look at church history and the way it was spoken about, it's really been in the last 100, 150 years that there's been a great movement to teach about prophecy because of the things that have changed in the world. Whereas Previous generations would have had a really hard time understanding, well, how are any of these things possible? Sure, they believed them. Sure, they taught them. And like my dad said, they would have had their explanations, but not nearly as much as we do today to see 
I mean, the nation of Israel didn't even exist for uh, 1,900 years. It wasn't even it didn't even exist. And so, just in, in a couple of generations ago, all of this the stage has been set. So it's quite incredible. Um, okay, so we're, we're a little over time. So let's wrap up. Verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. That is the number. What a way to end tonight. We're done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the time that we've had tonight. We thank you for your word. And, Lord, for the, Lord, we just thank you for the depth of it. And when we come to these passages, Lord, help us to be humble and to just step back and, uh, and think about your wisdom. And, Lord, be encouraged by the fact that you've had a plan for humanity from the very beginning. I pray that you'd help us to be wise. I pray that you'd help us to study to show ourselves approved, as your scriptures say, and help us, Lord, to take this and to really worship you more and, and to be more faithful in our witness. And we look forward to your return. So come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen.